Welcome to Faith and Family, a radio outreach of Family Life Center International. And now from Greenville, South Carolina, here's your host, Steve Wood. Hello, this is Steve Wood and welcome to Faith and Family. Thank you for joining us today. We're continuing our studies in the Old Testament book of Sirach, also called Ecclesiasticus, the Latin name meaning the church book. It was that book so widely used in the early Catholic Church to train faithful disciples of those coming out of paganism. And today we're going to be looking at theology and specifically a type of theology that I'm going to call personalized theology. The reason I'm going to call it, I've never heard anyone use that term, but that's where we're going. But hang on with me for a few minutes. First thing I'd like to do is start with Theology 101. Let's imagine we're going in to a class in theology. It's our very first day, very first level of theology. And what is theology about? It's about God. Theology is the study of God. Theos in Greek is for God, ology, the study of. And yet, today, we have theology of the body, we have theology of the home, and I think the teaching in both of these subjects, or the subjects that go under those titles, are good, but they're misnomers and serious ones, because theology isn't about me, it's about the, and you could say a Christian view of the body or a Christian understanding of the home. Uh, but to call it theology kind of gets off the tracks. Now, the reason I'm trying to emphasize this is that how we use and how we teach theology, and you are to teach theology in your home, mom and dad, by the way you live, by the way you worship, you are teaching theology. And you're also to teach theology, teach about God. That's what theology is about, to your children. And then the big, big, big topic as children get older, parents, priests, youth leaders, deacons, teachers, everyone's concerned about teenage and young adult morality. And did you know, listen to this very carefully, because I haven't seen a whole lot of youth leaders really get this, theology will profoundly affect morality. I'm going to just say that one more time, because that's the most important thing I'm saying this broadcast. Theology will profoundly affect morality. I'm going to give you an example out of Exodus chapter 34, okay? In the book of Exodus, okay, the children of Israel have been delivered by God, great miraculous demonstration of God's power and love. And then Aaron did a collection of the gold from the children of Israel out there in the desert, and he made that into a molten calf, an idol. And then he says to the children of Israel, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. In other words, they barely got out of Egypt, but the idolatry, which is a false view of God. Stay with me. A false view of God is idolatry. And 
Aaron says, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. They made a spiritual thing out of idolatry. It was a corruption of theology. And what was the result? Exodus 32, verses 6 and 7. And they rose up early on the morrow and offered burnt offerings. They got religious about it and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Now, rose up to play does not mean they were playing beach volleyball, okay? Uh, This is a very um, guarded Hebrew euphemism. Uh, The Bible isn't like an Oprah show where everything hangs out and you use rough language. No, rose up to play means they were basically having a sexual orgy. That's why the next verse says, God spoke to Moses, go down for your people who you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. It took less than 24 hours for the people of God, miraculously delivered from centuries of slavery, crossing the Red Sea, brought to the mountain of God, and yet when the theology was corrupted, it took less than 24 hours for the morality to be corrupted. This is probably the one of more outstanding examples in the Bible, particularly the Old Testament, and it's clear as a bell, and yet we don't seem to get this. We think, we think in order to have proper morality, uh, you know, theology, that's nice for theologians. You know, in other words, by theology, I'm talking the, the accurate and complete knowledge of God. No, that's a side subject if you're interested in religion, quote unquote. But for youth, we just need to teach morality, 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 and forget about theology. Let's go to the New Testament. I'm going to summarize for you the last half of the chapter of Romans chapter 1, and it basically describes not only the Roman Empire in St. Paul's day, it describes to a T the United States of America in my lifetime. I live through the sexual revolution of the 60s. And I remember that was preceded by everyone getting large doses of Charles in school, Charles being Charles Darwin. And Romans 1 talks about, and they denied that God was the creator. That's theology. In fact, if you're studying theology through the creed, that's the first line. If you're studying theology by using the Bible, that's the first chapter. God created. And when that gets corrupted in St. Paul's day and in our day, what follows in very short order is a corruption of sexual immorality. And that's what St. Paul says, licentiousness. And if it keeps up, God finally takes his foot off the brake. And you know, one of the worst judgments of God isn't like striking us with nuclear weapons. It's taking the foot off the brake and allowing us to go our rebellious, willful way, and particularly degrading him. Remember, this all started in Romans 1 with a corruption of the knowledge of God, erroneous theology, thinking things resulted in the world getting where it is, and it ended up with homosexuality. 
That's the evident sign that a deficient theology has resulted in sexual immorality. And we have to not just work on the effect, but go back to the cause. So that is just my introduction to the book of Sirach and talking about theology. Okay, I'm going to just pick out some of God's attributes. And here's, here's uh, a 10-minute, five-minute exam. Uh, bribe your kids. You know, I'll take you to Dairy Queen, get you anything you want. Just take uh, 10 minutes and write in a piece of paper what you think are some of the three most important attributes of God and see if the pen writes anything on the paper, okay? This is theology. And again, we've gone off and concentrating on a lot of things. And do this yourself, mom and dad. Maybe I should just challenge, probably where the challenge should start. But God's omniscience is a good place to start. And by God's omniscience, we mean that he's all-knowing. And by all-knowing, we mean all-knowing. He knows everything. It says in Sirach, chapter 42, in verse 19, he declares what has been and what is to be. He knows the past, the future, the present. He knows it all perfectly. Well, how how can he do that? It's because he's God. He's different from us, but yet his omniscience is taught all places of the Bible, including Sirach. This is verse 20 of chapter 42. No thought escapes him. Not one word is hidden from him. You know, sometimes when you say something a little off color or something you shouldn't be saying, you lower your voice. Well, God hears that loud and clear, every word. He declares that no knowledge is lacking in him. Not one word is hidden from him. That's God's omniscience. And so when we talk about theology, let's talk about God. It's about thee and not about me. Now, I need to qualify this because there's a certain sense that certain groups of Christians, both Protestant and Catholics, can portray an inaccurate picture of God, of theology, by picturing God as some type of cold, stern, remote, impersonal deity. And this isn't a true God. That's an idol, too. So when we talk about theology and God proper, that doesn't mean that it has nothing to do with us, and he has nothing to do with us. No, the Bible's all about that. He, he loves the world. He sent his only begotten son to redeem it. So I call this personalized theology. We're keeping our focus on God and his attributes, but we also want to look how his attributes would impact our lives. Do you get this? This is the way we can study theology without inverting it and turning something like our house into a study of theology, which is not what theology is about. Here we go. This is a prime example. I picked the best example out of the Bible of this 
personalized theology. It's Psalm 139. It starts out, O Lord, thou hast searched me and known me. Now, we're studying God's omniscience, okay? He knows everything, past, present, future. He knows everything that's said. He knows everything that's thought. He knows everything that's done. He knows everything that will be. But on top of all this, and we don't want to forget this, he knows me. The idea that the creator of this world, the omniscient God, knows me. The psalm goes on to say, you know me when I sit down, when I rise up, and you discern my thoughts from afar. He knows us better than any friend, including our very best friend. He says, you search out my path. When I'm lying down, you are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, O Lord, you know it altogether. Think about that. Before you come up with something to say, he knows what you're going to say. He knows you inside and out. And then the psalmist says, and, and again, God isn't out to strike us with lightning. I mean, if we've sinned, we confess, we go to confession, we restore our relationship. And how, how does the psalmist, King David, uh, acknowledge uh, God's omniscience in his life? Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. You see this? To get the right picture of God is that you have to really stretch. How does God know everything, past, present, future, all words? How does he know I'm going to say before I say it and everything else? This is how does he know what I'm thinking, even when I'm lying down and what I'm going to do? I can't quite figure all this out. If you've at that point, then you're really going to get an A plus in Theology 101. We're not trying to lower God like Aaron did to an idol or to Darwinists do to God's being creator of the universe. No, we go up and we realize that God is beyond our thoughts, but at that point we begin to worship. Now, his omniscience, I'm calling this the personalized omniscience. Because again, this isn't a remote deity that just has kind of left the universe after he made it. No, he's involved. The Psalm, again, 139 goes on to say, for you did form my inward parts. You did knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise thee for you are fearful and wonderful, Wonderful are thy works, thou knowest me right well. My frame was not hidden from thee when I was being made in secret in the depths of the earth. Thy eyes beheld my unformed substance. In thy book, and it's not like God's writing a book about us, but it's the, this is his, a way of expressing his omniscience. In thy book were written every one of them the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. This is omniscience, but it's personalized omniscience as well, in that God isn't remote from us, he's near to us, and he, his knowledge, his omniscience, God's omniscience, it's one of his key attributes, is such that he knows all of our days 
before we even live them. I've often wished that I could have a computer printout. I could just exactly know what the will of God is, but that's part of being a human being and discovering that as our life unfolds and taking the opportunities he puts in our way to help others, help him, help ourselves. But this is what divine omniscience is, okay? Let's go to another one. And this one, I hate to use this expression, it just blows your mind, but this one blows Steve Wood's mind, okay? And I didn't know this verse was in the Old Testament until I've been studying Sirach for this series. And you may not hear this on another broadcast, so listen up. We're talking about God's omnipotence. It's like omniscience. It's something all-powerful about what? Omnipotence is almighty power, unlimited power. And this is what Sirach chapter 43 and verse 26 says. And I've never read a comment on this prior to just this week, okay? So, I mean, it's probably out there, but I read a lot and I haven't seen this. Very simple sounding, but it's astonishing. Listen, and by his word, all things hold together. What do you mean by that? Okay, that was Sirach 43:26. Well, when I read that, I said, I've read that before. Because that's in the New Testament. A key verse in the New Testament about God's omnipotence. And let me read the New Testament one and I'll share with you what I think this is talking about. Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. St. Paul's letter, for in him all things were created in heaven and on earth. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Sirach, by his word, all things hold together. St. Paul, and in him all things, all things hold together. Now, you really want to increase your appreciation for God's omnipotence? Do a Google search. You know, you can put in a question about anything and ask, um, what's the binding energy of the atom? Because the way the atom is made up, it should be just <laughs> repelling uh, the, the components, the elements of the atom should be repelling each other. So in other words, every atom should be exploding, including the atom that makes up you and me and this chair I'm sitting on, this microphone, everything, every atom. And if you Google it, you ask the question, what is the binding energy of the atom? What holds the atom together? Now, if you do a Google search for this, you'll get various answers, but one of the common answers is that there is what is called by physicists the nuclear force holding the atom together. And again, this is every single atom in the universe. Um, the other term, very simple, is called the strong force. Now, they don't know exactly what the nuclear force is or the strong force is, but they know that something is holding every atom together. Well, I dare say Sirach chapter 43 and verse 26 says, 
and by his word all things hold together. This is the omnipotence of God. And if you've never heard it before, I'll make the claim. (laughs) Prove me wrong. But every atom on this globe, every atom in your body, every atom in your house, every atom in the universe is held together by the omnipotence of God. How about that for stretching your mind in theology 101? And here's kind of a secondary reason why I think that's true. St. Peter wrote two epistles, and that second one, 2 Peter, in the third chapter in the 10th verse, talks about what's going to happen at the second coming of Christ, called the day of the Lord. Okay, Uh, (laughs) a lot of physicists believe in a big bang. Well, this is going to be the big bang. Listen to this. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a loud noise. And believe me, that is going to be the loudest noise ever heard in the universe. The heavens, the universe is going to pass away with a loud noise, and the elements will be dissolved with fire, and the earth and the works that are upon it will be burned up. Now, this is where the labor of learning Greek pays a few dividends, okay? I looked up, what's the word behind this word dissolved? The elements, the basic elements of the universe will be dissolved. And that verb is actually the first verb you learn when you're studying Greek, luo. And luo means to, it can mean be dissolved, but it literally means to be loosed. Uh, The opposite of luo is to bind together, and then luo is to be loosed or untied or released. And here you have the omnipotence of God. And everybody thinks, you know, popular mind, we're kind of practical atheists. I mean, we go to church on Sunday, but the rest of the day Sunday and the rest of the week, we so often live as if God didn't exist. And then in our universities and our schools, and even some of our Catholic schools, we just study everything. And yeah, we have a little religion thrown in, but it's not like pervading all of our thoughts with the theology, the knowledge of God and his attributes, like his omniscience. Excuse me, this is his omnipotence we're talking about. Hear this. At the end of time, when it comes time for the present universe to be changed at the atomic structure. It's my belief that the entire universe can be big banged, the elements loosed, and everything burned up. And it is my estimation that this will take one second or less. Mm, I haven't really thought of things in that fashion. Well, think about it. People say, well, it took five billion years for God to use evolution to make the world, really, when it ends in a second or less? Because he's holding every atom in the universe together right now. 
he controls it. I'm reading you. By his word, all things hold together. And at the end, they're going to be loosed. They're going to be released. And the nuclear force will be released. And then we have a new heavens and a new earth, a real new universe. So uh, this is kind of big stuff, big stuff. Here's another one. We've looked at God's omnipotence, his omniscience, his all-power, his all-knowing. There's also God's sovereignty. God is sovereign. One of his natures is as a king. I have a companion broadcast. We call it Luke 21 Radio. It's on biblical prophecy. And so often we look at biblical prophecy through the lens of God as king and Jesus as king, and to understand biblical prophecy, to understand the great conflict in the book of Revelation, it's over kingship. And yet, we dare to think, and you know, at this point in history, it's pretty easy to think if you happen to be brave enough to watch the evening news that things are just out of control. Sirach chapter 10 and verse 4 has something that personally I have found, particularly in light of this week, um, which is the Afghan situation. It says that the government of the earth is in the hands of the Lord. It's not out of control. The first king, the first world ruler, was King Nebuchadnezzar over the first worldwide kingdom, empire on earth. And one day in it's recorded in Daniel chapter 4. Nebuchadnezzar is going around saying, wow, isn't this Babylon great? I've built by my mighty power for the glory of my majesty. And it says, well, the words are in his mouth. God says, you're going to have to have a lesson to learn. And you're going to be driven among men. And your dwelling will be with a beast. And the king, the first king of the world, was driven out, ate grass like an ox, it says his fingernails grew long like a tentacles of a, a bird of prey, and he had long hair. And then he was basically living like an animal until he learned that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And Nebuchadnezzar recognized God as sovereign king. That's part of the attributes. That's part of Theology 101. And it says at the same time, my reason returned to me. Boy, we could use some reason returning to our world and perhaps starts with studying theology. I'm Steve Wood, your host, and you've been listening to episode 350 of Faith and Family Radio. Faith and Family is a radio outreach of Family Life Center International. Visit us online at dads.org to order copies of Faith and Family broadcasts and to learn more about Catholic family life.